0: Today's episode of At Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase.
1: All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily.
0: At Close of Business, news briefing.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to the At Close of Business podcast. This is Simone Grogan with your Friday afternoon headlines. Asiona has locked out the owners of the East Rockingham Waste-to-Energy plant following a dispute believed to be north of $100 million. It's another contractual battle in Western Australia for the Spanish multinational, which was in the Supreme Court last year over force majeure claims at the Quinana Waste to Energy Project. The East Rockingham plant was to be completed in the first quarter of this year. That was on a fixed-price contract estimated to cost $511 million. The consortium awarded the engineering procurement and construction contract for the project to Asiona in 2020, with the Spanish contractor saying it would be in partnership with Hitachi, Zosen and OVA. But Asiona and the Ownership Alliance, including Mazda, Tribe, Energy and John Lang, have fallen out and the owners claim they have been locked out of the site since February 10. Legal representatives for the owners and the contractor attended a hearing in the federal court's WA registry today. The plant owners alleged Asiona and HZI have breached the contract and engaged in unconscionable conduct by restricting their access to site. Barrister Kananga Dahmananda, on behalf of the East Rockingham project owners, today told the court the contractors previously enjoyed a non-exclusive licence to the site, but that had changed dramatically. The owners are seeking to regain access to the site immediately, with Mr Dahmananda suggesting the senior executives of all parties involved need to hold a meeting as soon as as possible. Mr Darmenander said resolving the proper construction of the EPCC contract was at the heart of the emergency hearing. Lawyer for Asiona Kate Peterson rebutted the claims in court today. Federal Court Justice Katrina Banks-Smith ordered the parties to undergo mediation before March 10 when the respondents must file their statements in response. The parties also agreed to have their senior executives meet before starting mediation. Asiona have not yet responded to requests for comment. East Rockingham Chief Executive Jason Pugh confirmed the dispute. And in mining news, a bountiful lithium market has driven a 500% increase in underlying earnings for mineral resources. But founder Chris Ellison says short-staffed regulatory departments have held up a new iron ore operation. The iron ore and lithium miner delivered underlying EBITDA of $939 million, compared with $156 million this time last year. Minres shipped 177 dry metric tonnes of spodumene concentrate in the six months to December, from its share in the Wajina and Mount Marion assets, with revenue and earnings up significantly across both operations on the back of strong lithium prices. Mineraz revealed plans on Thursday to further expand its lithium operations, investing some $1 billion in two lithium refineries in China. Addressing investors this morning, Mr Ellison said he was struggling to see how producers would keep up with demand. Underlying earnings from Minres Iron Ore Business, Utah Point Hub and Yilgarn Hub moved from a $104 million loss in the first half of 2022 to a positive $37 million. The company shipped a total of 8.7 million wet metric tonnes of iron ore in the period, compared with 9.9 million wet metric tonnes in the same period last year due to upgrades at Yilgarn. Mr Ellison said iron ore prices, although unpredictable, were stabilising and that there was support for pricing at the $120 per ton mark. Construction is underway at its new iron ore operation, Onslow Iron, but first ore has been pushed back to mid-2024. Minres had previously been targeting first ore by the end of this calendar year. Mr Ellison attributed the setback to delays in government approvals, saying departments were short-staffed following the pandemic and that mining companies were partly to blame. He said mining companies had been stealing government people and that it was taking two to two and a half times longer to get approvals done. Mines and Petroleum Minister Bill Johnston has said in recent months that recruitment challenges have been a problem within the department and flagged the possibility of borrowing staff from resources companies. Western Australia's Environmental Protection Authority has also struggled with a big pipeline of projects. As is the case with most of the mining sector, Minres said it had observed increased haulage and labour costs. And in other news, the Fitzroy River Bridge will be replaced and is expected to be open by the end of next year, with Giorgio Group and BMD Constructions appointed as contractors. The bridge collapsed after record flooding due to ex-tropical cyclone Ellie in the state's Kimberley region earlier this year. Preliminary designs for the replacement bridge are underway and site works are expected to begin in May, according to a joint announcement between the Federal and Western Australian Government today. The consortium comprising Giorgio Group and BMD Constructions will collaborate with Main Roads and design consultant BG&E for the project. An $80 million package for emergency road recovery works after the impact of ex-tropical cyclone Ellie will be provided under the Joint Commonwealth State Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. Kimberley MLA Davina Deanna said the Fitzroy River Bridge Works were being actioned as a priority. WA Premier Mark McGowan said appointing a proponent for the replacement bridge was a critical step in reconnecting the Great Northern Highway. And that's all from me this afternoon. Coming up next on the podcast, Jordan Murray and Matt McKenzie discuss planning changes, university amalgamations and what they signal about the direction of WA.
0: Want to get more out of life? The Better Living Showcase has exactly what you're looking for. WA's leading health, wealth and happiness event, packed with live presentations, interactive performances, networking, investment, health and financial advice, you name it. It's all about helping you live your best life, March 18 and 19 at the Perth Convention and Exhibition Centre. Get your tickets now at betterlivingshowcase.com.au or contact 0404 756 347.
1: Welcome back to Act close of Business. I'm Matt McKenzie. If you wanted an example of who has power in this town, you've got one this week. And that'll be part of our thematic today in this episode. We're talking about the state government's reform priorities in the year ahead. Jordan Murray, tell us what you got. Well, Matt, Parliament has resumed for the year.
0: And as is expected at the start of every parliamentary year, the Premier has come out with a statement listing the government's priorities. And it's important to have a look at that statement because it'll give us an idea of what the major political fights might be in the year ahead. Now, there are some pretty small-scale things within the Premier's statement this year. Bread and butter issues, homelessness, youth crime, and of course, road and rail projects, particularly investment in Metronet. But as you say, there were two major announcements made this week that seemed to flag post some pretty significant reforms that, I must say, they speak to where this state government is at with its super majorities in both houses. And let's go first to that example I flagged at the start on matters of property and planning. So this announcement came out on Wednesday, and the Premier addressed a lunch hosted by the Property Council of Australia's State Division, and they were announcements pertaining to development approval pathways in this state. Particularly interesting was the Premier's announcement that the SDAU would be extended. Now, the SDAU, the Special Development Assessment Unit, was introduced as a COVID measure, back in, I believe, April of 2020. And it was meant to kickstart a host of projects across the state when there wasn't too much economic activity going on and to create jobs and to get things going in the construction sector. Now, there are mixed opinions on the effectiveness of that particular development pathway, but the Premier touted it as having approved $2.6 billion worth of projects since its creation. And it's no surprise that it would become permanent The Premier had originally said this, but not only will it now be permanent, the JDAP system, the Joint Development Assessment Panels, will also be further reformed. Now, again, these reforms had previously been signposted, but these were pretty significant changes. We're going down from five panels to just three panels. Now there'll be one covering the inner suburbs, the outer suburbs of Perth, and one for the entirety of regional Western Australia. And all projects valued at $2 million or over can go through this process whereas originally before there were some limitations on that importantly you can even have some projects that have fewer than 10 dwellings whereas before there had to be more than 10 dwellings for the project to go through the JDAB so add these things all together and what you end up with is a pretty stunning reversal of the process that we've seen, I guess, 10 years ago, where it was mostly local councils making the decisions on these types of developments. It seems as if the state government has really gone for a power grab here and decided that we're not meeting infill targets and we're not meeting supply targets, so it's time that they stepped in and start approving projects.
1: I want to have a chat about the implications of all of that in a moment, but also there was the Headworks Fund announced.
0: So that came out earlier in the day, and it was a bit of a marginal announcement in the scheme of the Premier's statements, given we already knew what it was about. But you are right. There was an $80 million fund that was announced, and my understanding is that apartment developers can apply for money within this fund, uh, and what they will get is some refunds on some basic works like sewerage and electricity. And I, as I understand it... The money won't be paid out directly to the developers. It'll be through credits at Synergy and Water Cooperation other state-based utilities. Uh, again, small bickies compared to what was announced. But Matt, I think you have some thoughts on this one.
1: Yeah, when this was first revealed a couple of months ago, the Property Council said that they wanted this Headworks Fund. I think uh, a lot of us kind of went, oh yeah, um, maybe we rolled our eyes a bit. Well, McGowan has rolled over think about this. This was proposed, at least publicly, in early January. Less than two months later, the government has agreed to give out the handouts. So if you want to know who has power in this town, think about this. Just two months from the proposal publicly of a headworks fund to the commitment of $80 million in this fund for apartment developments in the metro area and in regional WA. Compare that to the long debates that have been had about ambulance ramping. Hospital issues, social housing, and the government has in each of those fields moved. But I feel like the there was substantial public debate around those issues. There was a lot of media coverage. Um, there were a lot of uh, needs expressed by the people working in those sectors and the and the groups representing those sectors. Whereas in this case, two months, it's very rapid. And someone's going to ask the question, or someone has to ask a few questions about this. I mean, these guys are building, you know, hundred million dollar projects they're making major profits on these. Why exactly do they need a subsidy? Well, the argument is that when someone is building a huge apartment project, the cost of upgrading the sewers and the power lines are prohibitive. Really? The argument is that the upfront capital cost comes a long time before you get the revenue in. Well, what do you think happens when Chevron wants to build an oil and gas project? Or when BHP wants to build a mine? The capital cost is up front, and the revenue comes a lot later. If you don't want to have a capital cost uh, ahead of getting the revenue, then perhaps you should try opening a law firm. And I also note that last year the Property Council said skills shortages were crippling the apartment pipeline. So you can't get the staff to build the projects. Why should you get the subsidies? If you can't get the staff to build the buildings, the subsidies aren't going to fix that problem. And this is in the context of what is really a crisis in the construction sector. How does this fix that problem? The Property Council said years of undersupply, underinvestment and moderately growing population have resulted in rising property prices. So if property prices are going up, and presumably in that case that includes the value of the apartments that are being sold, why is it exactly that there need to be more subsidies? So an intriguing situation, Jordan, and it's not really clear to me at all that this will make very much difference at all to the housing supply, but I'm sure it will make a great difference to the balance sheets of developers, Jordan.
0: And certainly the property sector seems to be the happiest with these announcements. I know the Property Council of Australia's Executive Director, Sandra Brewer, was largely positive about these announcements when they were made at the property council's event, that's in contrast with the response from WALGA, which obviously represents the local governments of this state, whose President Karen Chappell had said these reforms eroded local decision making, particularly because, as I understand it, this new SDAU, or Special Matters Development Assessment Panel, will be able to, on occasion, act outside of local planning schemes and approve projects that don't totally adhere to
1: LPSs. I think there's a real argument about projects being held up, and we made the comments, or I made the comments a moment ago, about the apartment projects. And definitely we need to reduce red tape to bring down costs. It's not about giving out subsidies. Reducing red tape is the right thing to do. But it's worth wondering this. If the state government needs a 1,000 days to approve a little pipeline in Dampier next to an existing pipeline in a port which has hundreds of millions of tonnes of iron all moving through it every year, then... Who knows exactly how long it'll take them to approve apartment developments when the big SDOU system takes its place as a key regulatory body. Some councils, I get it, take the mickey. And Rita Safiotti says some are not compliant with legislation. Well, the question is, what are you doing about that? Do you cut their funding? Do you fine them? Whatever. There's an argument to take action if councils aren't in line with the state's planning legislation, But I don't think there's an argument to take power from all councils just for the actions of a few. Now, when I was younger, many years ago, I used to say, well, why not just let people develop? If someone wants to build a big building on their land, then whatever, really. But what I've realised is that so many of these disputes are about projects that are exceeding height limits or not complying and wanting an exemption. That's not always the case, but some of the most public battles, some of the most Uh, aggressive battles that end up in the media are over projects where they're just asking for the rules to be switched and moved a little bit. Um, And there's a moral question about this. If you sell land that's zoned for five stories to a developer and then they get a special approval to build 15, then that's not really fair, is it? Because you've sold the land at one particular value under one particular planning system and then the developer has used their clout Uh, to get a better outcome for them. Uh, Now, if it were really the case that it was about job creation, then presumably the developer could just buy three neighbouring plots and build five stories on each of them rather than 15, right? So there's no question that there needs to be some action. Whether the state government has taken the right direction will be an open question, Jordan. And there's another big change that's been announced, or rather not announced, but foreshadowed, potentially maybe depending on what a review panel comes out with, Talk us through, Jordan, what's happening in universities. The day after the Premier announced those changes
0: to development pathways in this state, Education Minister Tony Booty made an announcement that a structural review would take place of the state's four public universities. It didn't take long to realise what structural review means. The minister never directly said it. He never directly denied that this may consider amalgamations of the state's four universities. And you can see that, certainly, both in the arguments that he put forward, which do seem to echo those of the chief scientist, Peter Clinken, and that is, namely, WA's share of international students has been declining steadily over the past decade, its share of competitive research grants also on the decline, while its number of domestic enrolments has been stagnating, or at least not growing at the pace that would be desired. And structural changes would be necessary to address those problems. Now, I understand financial sustainability will be examined. I don't know whether that is necessarily an issue, particularly as during the first year of the COVID pandemic, two of the state's four universities were profitable. And since then, all of them have run at an operating surplus. That's not discounting the findings of the Auditor-General, which at times have found some concerning issues with aspects of each university's financial management, but certainly it doesn't seem as if there is a cut-and-dry case yet for amalgamations, and that's possibly why the Education Minister did not directly say that that is what he was seeking with this structural review. As well, he said he does not want to preempt the findings. Having said that, though, both Murdoch's Vice-Chancellor and Curtin's Vice-Chancellor have cautiously welcomed this review, They both want to talk about their university successes, it seems, rather than discuss any of these deeper structural changes that the state government might be seeking. Particularly interesting were some comments from Murdoch's Vice-Chancellor, Andrew Deeks, who said that sometimes the performance of universities can be shrouded by league tables. He said that sometimes these league tables are simply created to sell newspapers. I put that assertion to the Education Minister on Thursday. He denied it. He rejected it. He said he had a lot of respect for Professor Deeks, but that league tables were in fact important. Another interesting thing to remember is that, of course, one of the rationales for university amalgamations is ensuring we have a university in the top 100 on the major league tables. Also a concern of South Australia's state government in the merger of Uni of SA and University of Adelaide.
1: So there is a question that hangs over this, and it's one that the Minister will have to um, answer or one that the panel will eventually have to answer. And I think there's an interesting point there. What is the issue? I mean, we've got Curtin in the top 250 universities in the world, according to ARWU, UWA in the top 100, according to uh, both QS and Shanghai. Both have many subjects in the top 100, some even in the top 10. So where's the problem in all of that exactly? Now, the Fed's And the state government are spending nearly a billion dollars, or the better part of a billion dollars, moving ECU up the street. So, if we have so much money for that as a top priority, uh, then things surely cannot be that bad in our university sector if that's how we're spending a billion dollars. I was on the Senate at UWA back in the day. Uh, You know, it's like a board of directors, and I get it. Unis are bureaucratic. And they could deliver a lot more value for their students and their researchers from the money that they get than they do. It's worth pointing out though that anytime you really want to make change you get protests. People will say education is not for profit Um, but what they perhaps overlook there is when universities are making these decisions it's not so they can make big profits and pay dividends or something like that. They do it because they know that they need to be thoughtful about how they spend the restricted amount of money that they get so they get the best possible outcomes for their students and their researchers. And there's a lot of red tape that needs to be reformed. We should be confident that our universities are out there trying to do the right thing, that our lecturers are out there generally trying to do the right thing, trying to get the best results for students, that our researchers are trying to do the right thing. And the fact that they have to go through so much compliance and bureaucracy might be unnecessary and certainly is expensive. But This idea of a university monopoly, I think, is a little bit scary. There may be an argument for amalgamating two of the universities or merging two of the universities, and I'd be interested to see it. But the idea of amalgamating all of them, I think, is a serious problem because the thing that makes universities good, or one of the things that contributes to them being good, is that they are competitive. They can specialise. And if there's only one university, and that university is spending money poorly, or it's making poor decisions, that will be a terrible outcome. Whereas if you have an outcome where just one university is making bad decisions, well, at that time, the other three will be performing okay, and then of course there's Notre Dame. So that competition there means that uh, if things go bad at one university, students will start to be attracted to others. Uh, Having competition means that they get to fight over students and staff and capital, and that is exactly what we want. Now, I know the observation was made that it's bad to have unis fight over staff, but I disagree with that. It's actually great. It's great for the staff to start with. And secondly, we would never suggest that it's a bad idea for Rio BHP and mineral resources to be competing for engineers. No one would suggest that our all of our iron ore businesses should be merged together to form a big monopoly because we know that would lead to higher costs, more bureaucracy, less effectiveness in how it spends money, and we'd go from being a... a a state that derives so much value from our iron ore industry to a state where we maybe derive much less so. So we would never apply that argument to the iron ore industry or to so many other industries. I'm not sure why we should apply it to universities, Jordan, but I guess we'll have to see the outcome of this review panel. Jordan, what does all of this say about the direction of the state government?
0: Well, we heard a lot of concerns heading into the 2021 state election from Zach Kirkup when he conceded in the weeks leading up to the election that he wasn't going to win, that there was a serious risk of total control, that is, unfettered control of both chambers of parliament where there is no scrutiny scrutiny, and there's no negotiating with a crossbench to pass legislation. Now, those concerns at the time didn't really seem to break through and I'm not suggesting that there's anything untoward happening now. But certainly, I think you only need look at how the past fortnight of Parliament has played out to see what the outcome of this is. In the forthcoming edition of Business News, I write about the battle over the Perth parking levy, and I think it was important to note that that mostly took place between the Transport Minister, the Auditor-General's Office, and the Lord Mayor of the City of Perth. That's not to say the opposition hasn't tried to extract some information on this front and hasn't asked questions and hasn't been critical of some of those decisions. But you only need look in Parliament when Shane Love had asked the Transport Minister, if there's all of this money sat along in a fund not being used, why is that the case? Why is it sitting there? To which the Transport Minister could only delight in saying that she would go to the regions and she would campaign in the regions and she would say your opposition leader is currently arguing over car parking policy in the city. Is that in your interest? I think it speaks to the place we find ourselves now. And I think as well, if you look at both of these battles that we've just discussed, in the case of development pathways, it's WALGA. It's local councils that are most incensed by these changes and the ones with the loudest voices. If you look at education, it seems to be vice chancellors and education bodies that have been caught offside. The opposition, meanwhile, was arguing about issues concerning violent crime, particularly in Carnarvon and Laverton. And I'm not suggesting that they're not issues, and I'm not suggesting that the people in those communities don't deserve a voice, and I'm certainly not suggesting that there shouldn't be coverage of those issues. But if you c- consider the big political fights over the past week, the ones that will have the most consistent, long-lasting impact on how this state operates, the opposition has been sight unseen for reasons that are largely outside of their control, and it seems as if the state government will get its way on these major reforms, which, no matter your political persuasion, certainly does raise some concerns around transparency. What could go wrong here, Jordan? Could there be blowback for the state government? Certainly, if we look back at some big target campaigns and political goals in the past, you need only look at 2019 to see Bill Shorten and Labor running a quite aggressive campaign on winding back tax concessions for property ownership and uh, for asset ownership generally. Cast your mind even further back at a federal level to look at John Hewson's 1993 campaign when Fight Back was largely weaponised by Paul Keating in an ultimately successful election for Labor. And, of course, you don't even have to look at Canberra or at a federal level to see examples of this. Cast your mind back to 2005, and it was Colin Barnett who was being roasted for his suggestion that a canal could be used to solve some of Perth's water supply issues. It may be that the opposition is sight unseen at the moment. There is a serious risk, though, I would think, politically, of catching the community offside and getting the community to act as an opposition... Obviously, the opposition would rather that it be the opposition, but if you're catching everyone offside in the community and you're not pleasing everyone and you're certainly antagonising some aspects of the community with some of these reforms, there is a serious risk, maybe not heading into 2025, but in 2029.
1: Well, of course, the opposition would love to have the community angry about a few things because it might help them start to win some seats back. Jordan, thank you for your analysis today.
0: Thank you, Matt. The latest
1: business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit
0: businessnews.com.au.
1: Today's episode of our Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase.